the National Archives podcast series. How a chisel, a mule, a shipping container and a cloud contribute to family history. Presented by Sharon Hintz. I'd like to uh, destroy any illusions you have that this talk may A, be about current events in family history, which it isn't, <laughs> or B, may be very technical, which it's not. <laughs> it's a talk which was prepared for the centenary of the Society of Genealogists, which was in June this year. And when you have a centenary, you tend to want to talk about things which have a long vision, so looking forward or looking back. And this talk does both. Um, and so it's really a philosophical talk about record preservation and access. But if I called it a philosophical talk about record preservation and access, you wouldn't come. So I have to call it the talk about a chisel and a mule. I, it actually had the rather dry and stuffy topic title for the Society of Genealogists thing, but then we had a captive audience there of a conference, so everybody had to come. <laughs> it's the way life was. So when I started to prepare this talk, um, I wanted to have a long historical view of record preservation, not any kind of record, because you know that most of those little cuneiform tablets turned out to be counting bushels of wheat or something <laughs> completely mundane and commercial, but particularly genealogical records. And I, the question was, what was the earliest genealogical record known as a genealogical record that I could find? Well, I'm sure it's like those things that you see in Family Tree magazine where Tom Wood is always saying, does anybody have more than eight marriages for the same person? I'm sure that if I ask you that or asked in some public way, somebody would come up with something uh, older than two millennium BC. But what I like about this, and this Stella represents the chisel. <laughs> this is a piece of rock into which have been carved, as you can see, a lot of Egyptians in classic Egyptian pose, right? And beside each person, and they are all men, are a set of little hieroglyphs. And this is, in fact, a 60-generation genealogy. <laughs> so each one of those gentlemen represents a father of the person next to him, right? <laughs> <laughs> this is a 60-generation genealogy of a priest of the god Ta. Now, go on then, make a guess for me why a priest of the god Ta would want a Stella with 60 generations of his family history on it. The reason is that the right to be a priest of the god Ta was inherited. And that, in fact, is also true of lots of different societies where the people for whom there are very long genealogists are people who had the right to something which could be inherited. I mean, in Scotland, it could be fishing rights <laughs> on a stream. Most of the world's historic genealogies have to do with the inherited right to a kingdom or a dominion or some sort of right, religious or otherwise. It's interesting to think about that, isn't it? 
And if you really want to stretch your mind and you say, okay, we're talking about 2000 BC, and if an average generation is 30 and there are 60 generations here, that's another nearly 2,000 years. When I showed this slide to Anthony Camp, who I regard as the kind of dean of all British genealogists, although he's not so active now as he once was, he said, yes, and there'll be somebody who will have connected himself to it. <laughs> That's probably right, if anybody knew this. Just so that you know what the priests of Ta look like, this isn't the same person whose genealogy is here, but it's a fellow wearing the right clothes, which are the same clothes that all these other fellows are wearing. So that gave me a, re a really deep thought about how old it is. And then the other thing that strikes you about this is how, how simple the mean of means of preservation are. <laughs> it's a chisel. And now when we talk about access, so what access is there? And what preservation has preserved this record for more than 2,000 years? It's 4,000 years old, this record, right? Now, when we think about our modern record preservation and the whole National Archives and its work of preserving records, the National Archives has no records that are as old as this record. And few places do, but this is the record which has pretty much survived intact over 4,000 years. Every time I look at this, I'm just kind of amazed that that could be there. Now, there are lots of other documents which are also ancient and which have genealogies in them. I've chosen these uh, more for their artistic elements <laughs> than for the religious content. This is David Rex, recognizable with his harp, right, which he seems to be using some, I'm not quite sure, I guess that's just a handle to hold on to the harp with, and this shows his children, and his son Absalom is here. That is a very beautiful thing from the Book of Kells, which is why I wanted to include it, because it's such a beautiful representation of the genealogy of Jesus, which is given in Luke. So religious things, these are Egyptian and now Jewish and Christian. Very interesting Japan. Japan seems not to have stone records. And they must never have had parchment. So in fact, their oldest records are only 8th century, about the same age as the Lindisfarne Gospels. And they're on paper, which they, as you know, they had walls in their houses made out of paper, so paper was a very common medium. But it's a difficult medium to preserve. So you don't think about that. You think about Japan as a very ancient civilization. You don't think about the fact that, in fact, they don't have records very old. Remember, I said that these very old genealogies and long ones are usually connected with rites. And this is absolutely that. It is connected to who has the right to be the top person in Japan. 
And in order to do that, and this is also typical of ancient genealogical records, you have to claim the Japanese equivalent of the divine right of kings. And therefore, there has to be a leap at some point in your genealogy between a person whose children you know and some sort of higher being. <laughs> and that justifies the claim that you have made. Okay? Interesting concept. So that's Japan. Now here's another really interesting one. You know Mexico had, and the, the whole um, American Peninsula, Central America, had a very ancient history which was sort of came to a crashing end mostly due to the import of various diseases when people arrived from Europe. This is a king of the Mayans, and the little small box, those hieroglyphs, give, again, a genealogy. Now, in this case, not a very many generational genealogy, but enough, again, to establish the right to wear that very fancy whatever that is that he's got on his head. What there isn't in the Mayan genealogies is a big long series because more like happened in some other parts of the world instead of one group of people related to each other holding sway for a very long time. The people who became the top dogs were an ever-changing group of people. Now everyone knows that the Maoris in New Zealand have very interesting customs and art. What you probably didn't realize is that these council houses, I don't know how they say it, Huararunaga, however they say it, those council houses represent the genealogy of the group of people who build the house. Now, in fact, that is not true of the one we are actually looking at in the picture here, because this is a ceremonial new-built thing supposed to represent the merging of all the tribes, and so it has everybody's ancestors sort of munged in together as kind of an effort to be um, ethnically diverse as they saw it. But the house itself, if you were looking at a more typical one instead of this very special one, that person standing up there is the ancient and honorable most ancient ancestor. Connecting him to you today are 20 or 30 generations of genealogy which are memorized. And to help you, because if you've read all those articles about what you do to try to remember, you know that always with each thing you're trying to remember, you associate it with something. So you remember the things rather than the whatever it is. And inside, although you can't see it very well, there are different people carved and emblems of people around the walls. And they are your Ed Memoir, who remind you of the different stages of the genealogy. And here is the person at the top is obviously a man who had a boat, and that's his, so he's a fisherman of some sort. And if another one was a musician, then there will be a musical symbol or whatever it is that is your mnemonic to remember that particular generation. 
the thought of 20 or 30 generations, I mean, I'm not sure that I could on any of my lines even go back eight generations without losing my place. But most people couldn't, and I dare say most Maoris couldn't. The ones who are deputed to learn this, it's a very serious thing, and if your life depended on it and the inheritance of the title and all of this other stuff, you can bet your bottom dollar somebody would remember it, right? And then you'd have a contest of the old grandpa here and the old uncle here, and they might dispute at a certain point which way the thing forked, right? But that's how the leadership of the different family groups in Maori culture has been preserved, by oral genealogies. Now what we've learned by all of this, apart from being a bit gobsmacked and now we feel a little bit maybe smaller than we were because we thought we were doing something which was new and which people were interested in and here we are lucky practitioners. In fact, it's a very, 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 very ancient instinct of people to try to keep track of who they are. I had one member of the staff of the National Archives yesterday asking for a little help. He doesn't know where his father was born. He knows his father was born in Ireland. He does not, he knows his father's name. <laughs> he thinks he knows his father's birthday. Unfortunately, he has a very common name and he <laughs> doesn't know where he was born. Now, the interesting thing about that is not whether or not you can find out, because in his case, the birth is recent enough, you can find out. The interesting thing is how badly the person wants to know where his father was born. Why does he want to know that? <laughs> Why, what is it inside of us that makes us really want to know things like that? That's a hard question. And, but I'm convinced that, in fact, it's, it's pretty much hardwired into us. I do know a few people who say they don't care to know who their ancestors were and so on and so on, but I would say pretty much most people, the overwhelming majority, are very interested to know where they came from. Wordsworth says, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. And our theology is such that we think that's actually right, and that all those ancestors that would be back in our 30 generations if we had any idea what they were, are probably people that we knew before we ever were born. That's a heavy theological thought, and I'm just going to leave you with it. Now, let's come down to something much more frequent, or much uh, more uh, recent. So we've jumped forward now and we're in the 16th century and here is the man described by a number of historians as the best civil servant England has ever had. And certainly, I mean, every person in this room has a right to be grateful to Thomas Cromwell because without him, we would not have the parish registers on which we all rely. And it's a remarkable thing that not only did he 
order the keeping of the parish registers, but he saw that they were kept. And that's the difference between a good civil servant and a fat, lazy one, right? <laughs> Not just issue something, but follow through to see that it's done. Cromwell, that's very positive. The negative part of Cromwell is that he is also the reason why the Catholic records don't exist. So if you're of Catholic heritage, this is not your favorite person. <laughs> and it does, however, leave you very much in the, it, it, it's so, for the, ordinary, for the genealogies of ordinary people, persons like yourself and me, you're so dependent on what other groups of people and particularly governmental authorities choose to keep and not keep or record and not record. And that can make a great deal of difference to your success in being able to answer the question of where was my father born? Now, some events, as you know, are extremely well documented. But half the people living today have no record of having been born. So you've read what they're doing in India, where they're attempting to provide an identification for people using fingerprints because most of the people born in India never had any birth registration. So essentially they're going to do an identity card and different than the attitude of a lot of people about having an identity card in this country, it's a kind of puzzling attitude to me, but it's a very strongly held opinion by a lot of people, don't want an identity card. The people in India are delighted to have an identity card. They can't open a bank account. They have no proof of anything. So they register them to vote and at the same time get them signed up for having an identity, a legal identity a document unique to them, which identifies who they are. And again, that it's, it, it's just amazing to think how many people don't have that. Now, right, now we're getting down to the preservation methods. Well, there are several different ways of preserving things. I'm calling the chisel the engraved part. You can call the parish registers the handwritten part, right? Some of them or on printed forms. A lot of people take photographs of headstones. Nowadays, um, organizations like this one and like Family Search spend a huge amount of time dealing with trying to find ways to digitally preserve things. I like to contrast the history of digital preservation with that first picture we looked at the thing carved in the stone and say it's exactly how long have we been trying to do this digital stuff and how many different versions of it have we gone through and what, what, what certainty do we have that it will be even in a hundred years usable. Now here are some illustrations of repositories of genealogical records. Remember my emphasis here is genealogy. It's not general archives and Doomsday Book and all that stuff. This is the Essex Record Office. This is the famous Granite Mountain Vaults in uh, Utah. Here's a typical parish church, which at one point had its parish chest. 
probably doesn't anymore or has an empty box. And there's a block of flats. And the block of flats are there because actually current genealogical information is mostly in the blocks of flats. <laughs> I, don't, I think it's countless the number of people I have tried to help with their family history who haven't really brought enough from home to be able to begin. And that means that each one of you is a repository. Now what's really interesting is that I, my father was an academic, so I know something about PhD candidates. PhD candidates um, are sometimes successful and sometimes not. And the ones who don't succeed very seldom just decide to go fishing the entire time and don't do any work. The ones who don't succeed usually do a huge amount of work and have a huge amount of data and never write up. So on a philosophical note, the question is, what kind of PhD candidate are you as a genealogist? <laughs> and that's a hard question for most people. Right. Now let's talk about, um, I'm going to talk just a little bit about family search. And this is our first microfilming efforts in 1938. We were actually over here up in Durham before the Second World War started, and then we came back in 1945 afterward. And the digital imaging, as it happens, um, started um, 60 years later than the microfilm imaging. Now, in those early days of filming, uh, almost no records were collected together into cantonal or provincial or county archives. They were still in the places where they had been recorded. And these are some, uh, some uh, Italian Valdensian records coming down the mountain. Mules were the alpine um, beast of transport for thousands of years, and this is one such. And here's the Italian. And in, it's the funny thing about this picture is it's the European with the short pants and the American with the long pants, and it's usually the reverse. <laughs> so now we've had the chisel and the mule. And here's the developing of the microfilms. This father, who's probably being paid by the church, has roped in his son to help, who almost certainly is not being paid by the church. <laughs> this fellow here is working on a machine which takes a roll of microfilm and converts it into digital images. Now what's really interesting is that if you look at the pictures at the bottom on the left and the right, or even the big one in the middle, you will see that the taking of images of things in order to preserve them has actually not changed at all. It involves laying something down flat, getting a lot of bright light on it, and taking a picture of it, whether the picture is an old analog camera or whether it's a modern digital one. The thing which is amazing about this is that in 60 years, essentially, unless you're going to chop the book and feed it through some um, cut sheet feeder, if the book is such that you don't want to do that, then essentially the method of doing it is really the same, and the speed of doing it is 
pretty much the same and quite slow if you leave the books intact. Now, the National Archives is going to suffer from this. <laughs> Backlog is getting bigger because the closure period for governmental records is getting shorter, right? And as it gets shorter, more records are going to pour into here and need to be cataloged and conserved and organized and whatever happens to records that come here, right? So, on the one hand, you can look at technology today and you can say, oh, wow, it's wonderful what we can do and we can do it so much faster than we used to and the images are so much better. On the other hand, the volume of stuff that you're now trying to deal with is becoming really overwhelming. And when you have to combine that with the issue of, you know, financial limits to how much you can spend, it's harder and harder and harder to even keep up with where we are now. Now, I want now to talk about that sort of the present. We did past, now we've done a little bit present. And now we're going to do future. You see this fellow, Brewster Kayla. Doesn't he just look like a flaky Californian? He is a flaky Californian. Doesn't he have that sort of visionary intensity in his face? He does. This is a man who has as his objective, and he's achieved his objective, that he is archiving the internet. He's not an internet-based archive. No, he's archiving the internet. He's also into scanning books and giving them away and trying to give away software so that people can do digital archiving. So he's really a real Californian visionary looking toward the future, trying to create the future himself. And he's shown beside one of his big storage. I forget what they call those. Now, so here's the end result of all Brewster's work in archiving the internet. This is his data center. It's inside a shipping container. He takes a snapshot of every page on every website every eight weeks. He must have that automated, right? <laughs> this isn't even a 40-foot container. It's a 20-foot container. That's not a big thing. That's a small thing. My furniture takes more than that to move from place to place. That's it. That is the whole internet. Now, a really interesting question and what is starting to be explored is, let's suppose somebody did something they shouldn't have done and posted it on the internet. Can Brewster's archive of the internet be introduced as legal evidence? And of course, it has already been tested. And I think in some cases, it has been admitted as evidence. And it probably depends on the court and how things are organized. But for me, <laughs> this is, uh, gee, you know, I'm going to think a lot harder about whether I actually ever put anything on the internet <laughs> of any personal nature at all. Because let me tell you, Brewster has got it. And your great-grandchildren are going to find it. <laughs> 
we've already been exposed to people who think they're going to run for high political office and turn out to have really bad Facebook profiles. <laughs> and this is, this is uh, more than that. So the Internet Archive, this particular box is what Brewster calls the way back machine. Way back, of course, is relative, 15 years. Nothing like way back as to the Egyptian stella that we looked at that's 40,000 years old, which is, again, emphasizing the dichotomy between all this hoo-ha and bright lights and a lot of noise about digital stuff right now compared to how records have been kept in the past. And I, I'm not in any way trying to um, say that it's not important what is happening now. We live in an age of transition between other kinds of records and digital records, and there isn't any going back. But it's a very small amount of time and a very small amount of experience that we actually have with that kind of record. Now here is another bunch of wild-eyed Californians. You can look up their website. They are called the Long Now Foundation. I love these Californians. They've gone out into uh, Nevada and bought big barren mountains because they want to make um, an ultimate clock and they need a lot of room to do it the technical way they're going to do it. They write dates in a special way because their framework is 10,000 years. I mean we wouldn't want any small thoughts would we? <laughs> now I've some commercial background and anything that any commercial firm plans really more than about 18 months ahead of time is pretty rubbishy. You generally produce three to five year forecasts of things from time to time, but so many things can intervene that they're seldom of much use. These people are trying to figure out what they can keep and preserve over lengths of time twice as long as that Egyptian stella was produced. Now they have lots of good works that they're involved in and if you want to go and mess about and read about them you'll see that you can say that making a lot of money from Silicon Valley is a bad thing but that's what Brewster Kayla did and that's what these people did and now they're thinking big thoughts and planning for the future of the planet in ways that nobody else can afford to do. And I don't think that's bad. Now here's, they have the idea of a 10,000 year library. And one of the things they're trying to preserve are languages. They know languages are disappearing, dozens of them every year. The last remaining 86-year-old grandma now has throat cancer, and that's the end of that language, right? <laughs> right? Okay. So they want to do a digital language archive, and they already have. And here it is. You're looking at it. It's a little ball like this. What is it? Guess how it is preserved. It's engraved. What it has is it has two different texts, one from the Bible, and I have completely slipped my mind what the other one was, but another historical thing, not a religious document, 
And those two texts are repeated for a thousand languages, each language, both texts. Each, so it's a giant Rosetta Stone. That's why they're calling it the Rosetta Digital Language Archive. And the digital part is that they're recording these last speakers of these things. But their concrete representation of the languages is not digital. It's this. Now, when you look at it down from the top, you can see what's here. See that little dot there? This little map of the world is this thing. And then you can see that the letters at the top are written around in a spiral, so you can see several different languages. And they start with letters that are big enough for you to see with your naked eye. And then they spiral down and become very tiny. And I believe there in the world part, it says, if you want to read this, you need a magnification of this power. So in a small object engraved, they have preserved all of these languages exactly in the Rosetta Stone format by repeating the text several times. Well, I mean, that's a kind of an interesting thing. You've got Brewster Kayla, who's out there gathering up the internet and freezing it in time every eight weeks. And you've got these 10,000-year people who are doing something so rudimentary as to be unbelievable. I mean, it's very high-tech because, of course, engraving on that glass and getting it all. Now, of course, when you want to preserve something, we also talked about access. So what are they doing? They are putting lots of these little balls, all lots of places all around the world, so that there's a good chance of them being still there no matter what happens, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So they're covering, that. they're covering all kinds of things. But the thing which impressed me about it is what simple technical means they have chosen to use when their time horizon is 10,000 years. Brewster Kayla's isn't 10,000 years. Brewster is just trying to photograph the waterfall of what's happening on the internet with, you know, whatever you call that, uh, where you take a pic picture every so few seconds, right? And then you get a series which shows you what was happening. That's what Brewster's doing. Brewster's recording the present. These people are preserving the present. That's two different things. Well, Brewster is also preserving, but those other people are, have a much longer time view. Now, the question is, what's going to happen with preservation? And here's where you're probably going to be disappointed in my talk, because I'm not a big expert about this. What I think is that all the preservation methods we listed before, the photographs, the engraving, the digital, the handwritten, the everything will still continue to exist. It isn't true that in 10 years or in the, your grandchild's lifetime that nothing will be used except digital. Remember I told you for genealogy, the biggest repository is your flat. So. <laughs> You have only digital stuff in your flat? I don't. At the same time, we are in the digital age, and digital is how records are now going to be taken and how they are going to be preserved, and they will hopefully migrate through different versions of preservation. 
The fact that things are going to change is also uh, one of the most commonly recorded things about the era that we are now in. And any one of us who can't even keep up with the changes on the browsers and how the programs that we use keep changing knows what a pain that is. Um, but it isn't going to stop. It's just going to get worse. What is going to be an element is the location of where you're going to keep the records that you're going to preserve. And as you know, um, the records are much safer if they're kept in more than one place. And so location, whatever the method of preservation, is not going to stop being a critical element. What is true is that you and I can now much more easily record things when I think, well, think of an average teenager on a trip to Paris. <laughs> okay, how much recording of my visit to Paris is going on? Hundreds of pictures, maybe hundreds of pictures every day, right? And what is taking these pictures? The phone, right? And where are the pictures going? To Facebook. Pretty much unedited pretty much dumped in, or they're being emailed various places. Now, we have talked about the chisel. We've talked about the mule. We saw him in person. You know what the shipping container has to do with. The cloud, I think, is a concept that you're familiar with. The idea is that instead of keeping your family history records on your own computer and then you go someplace else and if you forgot to take your flash drive there's your family history sitting back at home and you have your laptop and you'd like to see them but you need internet well anyway the cloud essentially is it's mostly used for storage and hosting of things and you know there are several vendors today who offer you storage of that so if you put your you could put it on Google you can put it on Facebook, you can put it on all, many, many, many places. You can hire storage place from places like Amazon. Family Search at the moment is using a cloud um, which they rent from Amazon to host a lot of their digital images that you see when you use the Family Search site. Essentially, it's trying to get away from the concept that you have to have your own set of servers or a huge hard drive at home. If you keep a lot of pictures, you're trying to rent, or if you don't have your needs are not so big, you can get for free the usage of all this computing power up in the sky. Very, very, very powerful thing. Very helpful commercially. Let's suppose you're a firm of intellectual property lawyers. Can you imagine how much documents that is? You don't want to think about it. And because you're an international firm, you have people in five or six countries working on the same case, needing to see the same documents. And now you will, the legal firm will have its own cloud. It will have rented space, which is very secure that nobody else can get into. They can store all the documents they've had in this case for the last seven years while they've been working on it, and everybody can find them all and can say what those guys did three years ago was a lot of rubbish and I myself have a different interpretation and whatever they're going to do, right? So this is a very, 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 very powerful concept and affects not only big organizations but people. And it does have to do with family history.
The question is, what does this all actually mean to you? Well, one of the things it means to you is that you need a personal digital preservation plan. And that means that you need to think seriously about, I have a hard time doing this, stopping, rushing around, gathering a whole lot of other stuff and staying home for a week and trying to organize better the stuff that I now have. <laughs> More like I should stay home for the summer to organize the stuff that I now have, right? And get it documented and get it organized and probably get it stored somewhere on some cloud. And then, since I live alone, let somebody else, a few several family members, know where it is and have access to it, right? Otherwise, my life's work has gone off into the ether forever and nobody knows, right? My recommendation to you is that you try to get your work or whatever you do with the stuff you're preserving connected to something big. So I suggest that you get connected with a firm that you think is going to be there 10 years from now, hard to say whether that's Amazon or Google or whatever, but that I would recommend doing that instead of finding the little tiny startup firm which may or may not be there in a few years. Well, I told you this was going to be philosophical, and it is. It's been interesting for me to think it through. That was the preservation type. This is now the access. Now, some people don't want any access, you know, writers who burn their work and their papers when they think they're going to die because they don't want people plowing through seeing the ultimate five drafts before the award-winning novel. And, I think I might be that way myself. The novel is the novel, forget about the stuff. You can visit the repository to see something. You can see a physical copy of it, like a piece of paper. That's what most people who come to the National Archives actually go home with, is a pile of copies of pieces of paper they've printed out. Or you can get digital copies. With access, the same sets of methods um, will be used. You can go to the place. The digital is absolutely predominating now and that will never go backward. Think how hard it is to get any county record office to let you see the actual parish register. It doesn't happen. I mean, you have to have a really good, you'll have to be saying they've given you the film and you're looking at the film and you're saying, yeah, yeah, but that page there, it's bled through, and I need to see the actual page. And they might let you look at it. If they thought you had a good case, they might let you look at it. But almost all of the physical access to the, to the church records disappeared a couple of decades ago. Here in the National Archive, the access to the films has largely disappeared with the digital versions appearing and the indexes being there. It's not a question. Can you imagine anybody actually going up to the red desk and saying, you know, I'd really like to see the physical enumerators page of this page of the census. Yeah, if, if it really was messed up or torn or folded back or something, and it had been filmed that way, yes, it could be retrieved, but not today in 15 minutes, let me tell you. That isn't going to happen. 
Change is going to be faster. Everything is going to be more personalized. I'm kind of terrified about this myself. I don't like it when the internet knows what I want to look at and don't want to look at and keeps trying to throw stuff at me that it thinks I want to look at. But that's pretty much inevitable. The search capabilities are definitely going to be better. Um, it's hard to say that today because today, as we go through the different editions and fashions for search engines, we as the users find that they are worse and worse, by which we mean they're not like they used to be. But them changing isn't going to stop. Them changing is going to go forward. And it is going to be stronger in the end. Handheld, the phones, that's going to be an important part. Networked, able to get it off the cloud or from something else. Very much more the transmission of genealogical data and access to it through social networking sites. Then this is the great um, specific example of what technological obsolescence can do to you with digital things. You read about this last year, where in 1986, all these school children prepared a modern doomsday book, which then, 10 years later, nobody had any equipment to be able to read. Fortunately, um, mankind being endlessly smart at undoing its blunders of the previous 10 years, it's now accessible again and has predictably been put on the internet. Here's another thing. So here's a bunch of students visiting the Library of Congress, which kind of corresponds to the British Library. And you can see they brought along, this one has an actual camera, but I guarantee most of their pictures that are taken are taken by the phone. And they're being shown one of what looks like a giant CD, which is apparently a giant CD, and then the question is whether this CD that the National Archives is showing off or that Library of Congress is showing off really has any much better chance of being read in 10 years than the one for the second Doomsday book. I love this. This is a man who's a librarian of the family history uh, section of the second biggest American genealogical library, which is the Allen County Library. And he says that this is the consumer of today. He will describe to you uh, a teenager who comes in <laughs> to the library, can't remember why he's there, has to phone his mom to ask, what was I here for, you know. Then <laughs> gets the information. <laughs> then he has to phone his mom and say, what was the password? And <laughs> anyway. Eventually, he takes his pictures and emails them to his mom and goes home without a single piece of paper. He thinks he's done his assignment. Whether his teacher thinks that or not, I don't know. <laughs> and they're not much society members. And the question is, why do they come at all to a bricks and mortar place? In the case of the little example I've just given, the kid had been sent in to look at an actual book. And the book was known to be at the library. He was told to go in there and extract such and such out of this book. Of course, when he got there, he didn't know what book he was there for. It's not helpful when <laughs> speaking to a librarian. Not helpful. It's blue, apparently, the kid said. <laughs> not helpful. <laughs> 
No matter how much stuff the National Archives or FamilySearch decides to put online, people are still going to want to visit the Family History Library in Salt Lake or the National Archives in Kew. It's partly social, it's partly they want help, it's partly they found the record but they don't know what it means or they can't read it, right? There are a lot of reasons why bricks and mortar in this digital world remain relevant. Now, so this is the future for you. You're going to spend less time searching. And that's happened to all of us over the last 10 years as the censuses and BMD records came online. We spend less time searching. We find a whole lot of stuff which we then have a hard time organizing because it's so easy to find, right? Because of the more finding, you will end up in your own family history in the future. When I have written better family stories, I mean you'll have a much more complete picture of what your family and your roots really were than any of us could do when we would spend, I can't tell you how many days, looking for one census entry. Now we really do need to get organized and get out of the failed PhD student mode because we're finding things so fast. When we do have the better family stories, what you get is each individual person gets a scratch for that itch to know where was my father born. So there never was a generation of people who had a better chance of finding that out than our generation. And if we can succeed in organizing what we are preparing for our children and grandchildren, then the sense of personal identity will just be deeper and the bonding between the family stronger. I remember one day going in to the Family Records Center downstairs to look at GRO books. And I picked up, to use as a piece of scratch paper, uh, a form for a certificate that someone had started to complete and had abandoned and had left there. And when I unfolded it, it had been folded in two, and opened it, there was the start of the application. And then, you recall that form used to say, what's the purpose? Why do you want a certificate? That form said to you. And this person had written on the form, unite the family. Now obviously they'd made some blunder, the form was only partly filled out, but it was clear what had driven that person to that place to look for books on that day was to do something which they felt was going to help their family to have a stronger sense of who they were. And I'm really here to tell you that that sense is not ever going to go away. We just have to try to keep up with it and to keep well organized. Thank you very much. This event was recorded on the 1st of December 2011 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.